This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. If you work as a cybersecurity leader, you might have the sentiment that compliance sucks. The traditional manual requests such as screenshots, spreadsheets, long meetings with auditors, really it's not a great experience. But luckily there's ByteCheck, a platform designed to make compliance suck less. With ByteCheck, you can establish your security program, automate your readiness assessment, and complete your SOC 2 examination faster, all from one single platform. Built with a robust set of integrations that connect to apps you use every single day. The ByteCheck integrations eliminate traditional manual evidence requests. The ByteCheck platform is powered by the ByteCheck engine, which automatically assesses your controls against audit and security best practices. ByteCheck is founded by cybersecurity and accounting industry leaders with a combined experience of over 30 years. That knowledge is ingrained into the ByteCheck engine to provide you with a quality report that meets applicable standards. If you're in the market for a SOC 2, we have a special limited time offer for Hacker Valley Studio listeners. You can get 50% off their annual subscription to the ByteCheck platform and a free readiness report from the ByteCheck team. Reach out to ByteCheck at www.bytecheck.com and let them know Hacker Valley Studio sent you. This is a limited time offer, so get it while you can. In this episode, we brought in a master storyteller, Neil Bearden. He coaches people all around the world on how to tell better stories. And believe it or not, he has a good one himself. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we have an exciting special guest, Neil Bearden. Neil helps companies and individuals find and tell their greatest stories. I'm excited to have you, Neil, on the podcast. I know that you also founded your company, PlotWolf, but most importantly, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Neil, so I was introduced to you by a colleague, Charlotte, and when I went to your website, I was immediately interested in what this was all about. So I reached out, I applied to be a part of one of your masterminds, but I would love for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. My background is at the moment for a little bit longer. I'm a business school professor. I live in Singapore. I teach at a business school called INSEAD. Way back in the day, I did a PhD in psychology, found myself here teaching statistics at the beginning. Along the way, taught behavioral economics, behavioral decision-making, found out that rather than statistics and economics, I like talking about stories much more. So I started the first MBA course at our school on storytelling called Storytelling Workshop. It's, it's done quite well, in fact, well enough where I discovered that there's an enormous market, basically the total addressable market for storytelling is the entire world. So I resigned from my job. I will teach throughout July. Then I'm going to move to the woods of North Carolina and work remotely and kind of semi-retire. So I'd love to hear when that storytelling aspect of your life came to the forefront of your mind. What, what was that story and what was the thought process behind it becoming a part of what you do on a day-to-day basis? I was doing a postdoc in neuroscience at Duke University. 
this is in 2005, I was working on bluffing in poker. I was trying to find out if there's a region of the brain that gets excited, is active when one bluffs in poker. Basically, I wanted to find the deception area of the brain. I went from North Carolina to San Francisco to a neuroscience conference to present my boring academic research, gave painful, painful presentation that I don't remember, that no one remembers, left the conference, decided that I would go for a walk. This is before Google Maps. This is old school. I had a paper map. I'm standing on a street corner. I get a tap on my shoulder. I turn around. There's this old black dude behind me with, with a big gray beard, some coat about four sizes too big, wearing a big scarf. And he said, would you like to hear some poetry, young man? I said, uh, okay. I turn around and he said, they're latent semantics embedded deep down inside these rambles. These aren't the ravings of a madman alone in the dark with candles. These are my notes in the underground. They were sent to me from the year 2012. Dostoevsky said to a beef, these lyrics, they were pinned in a prison cell, carved with a knife, sent to the compression of vacuum tubes that articulate expressions, a riddle answered with a question, a rhythm that's progressing. It keeps your head nodding like you're agreeing with the lesson, your freedom. <laughs> it's called the question, free will, that's obsolescent. It's a myth from long ago, it's no longer relevant to the present. So you must abandon all your thoughts, young man, you must replace them with this prism. You're plugged into the system, you too are now in prison. In the matrix of your mind, on its walls, ancient wisdom in a system of symbols encrypted and deeply hidden in the depths of your unconscious, as if it were forbidden. It kept my side awareness by the id who does its bidding. And then for about the next seven hours, I hung out with that dude. I bought him a hot dog. Wow. He said, he said, what are you doing here? I said, what do you mean? He said, you're not from around here. I said, how do you know? He said, you're carrying a map, fool. I said, well, <laughs> I said, well, I'm here from a, I'm here for a neuroscience conference. I just gave a talk. It was a disaster. What do you do? I'm a poet. I said, I said, what's your name? My name is Osiris. I said, come on, man, don't be asking me. What's your name? My mother named me Osiris. And for the next seven hours, I was in the company of a thoroughly, thoroughly authentic human being. Whenever he wanted to drop a poem, he would drop a poem. We talked, he wasn't distracted, he was entirely engaged. And we spent those seven hours, most of it after the hot dog, in some little dodgy bar in the Tenderloin District. I was drinking beer, he was drinking water. And he kept going into his bag and he would pull out poems that he had written. He had about 20 notebooks in this bag. At the very end, when the guy at the bar, the guy running the bar, it was just the three of us in there, he said, Osiris, gentlemen, you need to get out of here. Osiris went back into his notebook, pulled out a piece of paper very deliberately, folded up one of those pieces of paper from his notebooks, handed it to me and said, this one is for you, young scholar. I went back to my hotel room. We departed very quickly. I got in a taxi. I got back to my hotel. I'd been wondering all night, what's this guy got in these notebooks? I couldn't see because he was on the other side of the table. I just saw these black speckled notebooks like he used in math class in high school. He just had a bunch of these and he kept reading from them. So finally, I thought, I'm going to look at the poem. Does this guy write in hieroglyphics? What does his handwriting look like? Who is this guy? And I couldn't find the piece of paper that he had given me right when we departed. I looked outside my door. I looked in the bathroom of my hotel. I went downstairs where the taxi dropped me off. Couldn't find it. Thought maybe I'll go back to where we departed at that bar but I had no idea where that was. I, I was, didn't know San Francisco. 
went to the conference the next day, academic, blah, blah, blah. Went out that night with some colleagues from Duke and a guy across from the table asked me, perhaps one of the most important questions anyone's ever asked me in my life. He said, Neil, what were you doing last night? I didn't see you. I said, well, you know, I, I went out for a walk. I met this guy, Osiris, a poet, told him about what had happened, told him about the piece of paper that Osiris had given me, told him that I had lost it. And the guy at the end, after I told him all that, this is the important question he asked me. He said, why weren't you networking last night? And I thought, mm. man, that's your takeaway from that. I lost this. I met this guy, I spent seven hours with him. And you're asking me why I wasn't at the academic cocktail hour wearing a name tag, sucking up with people. That's your takeaway. So I flew back from San Francisco to North Carolina with two commitments. One, I want to write some poetry. I like what that man did. I would go to coffee shops to program my MATLAB when I was in grad school. People would get up on the microphone for open mic night. I was intimidated by the fact that the people had courage to do that. There's no way I could do that. I was very shy. So I went back with a commitment. I'm going to write poetry and I'm never going to live my life the way that dude sitting across from me at dinner was living his life, focusing on networking. So I went back. I started writing poetry. It was bad. It got a little bit better. I started writing more and more. I don't remember what Osiris told me in 2005. Obviously my memory is decent, but it's not that good, but they're latent semantics embedded deep down inside these rambles, not the ravings of a madman alone in the dark with candles. I started writing stuff like that after I met Osiris because I met Osiris. And then anytime I could go to a place where there was a microphone and a crowd, spoken word poetry, slam poetry, I would get up, I would do my little poetry, and then critically, I'm answering your question, I haven't forgot, I would start telling stories. And I would tell stories about meeting Osiris, this incredible human being that I met, and then he got me writing poetry. And a funny thing would happen is that the beer bottles clanking, the chatter, when I would tell stories, it would become very, very quiet. And people would lean in and they wouldn't blink. And I realized, okay, I have their attention. And then I just got committed. Okay, this works. I like doing this. This is a very effective way of communicating. I want to do that better. So I kept practicing and practicing. And the dude who came here originally teaching statistics, he moved over time into storytelling. I figured out how to do it okay. I figured out how to teach it quite well, I think. And that went from me becoming a business school professor teaching storytelling to now a guy at 47 years old who's just burning the ships entirely. I got a, a wife, a four-year-old daughter. I got a mortgage, but I resigned from my tenure permanent job because I want to be an entrepreneur to pursue this, to help other people, because everyone needs it, tell their story better. Because when you tell your story, not only do you communicate more effectively because people want to hear it, but there's a surprise effect, which is when you learn to start articulating your stories, you actually learn about yourself. You start appreciating what matters to you, what doesn't matter so much, when you start plotting it, when you start laying it out, when you start structuring it, and critically, this is important, when you start sharing it with other people. So that's a very long, long, long way of saying, I got into it because I met a man named Osiris. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. That's such an incredible story. Just to kick off the podcast, I'd love to hear a little bit about 
how that felt, like that time with Osiris. And have you seen him since then? It seemed like you were completely disconnected from everything that you had known previous to that. What was that experience like? And then was that such a punch to the gut when you were sitting across from your friend and your friend was like, why weren't you doing the thing that you were supposed to be doing last night? Yeah, it it was, man. The reason why it was such a wake-up call for me is because I wanted so badly, I thought before that, to be like that dude who asked me that question. Okay, this guy, I'm sure he had Ivy League education. He had a good job. I I was a lowly postdoc. This guy was a professor. And I thought, that's what I'm striving for. That's what I, all this education has been because I want what that dude has. And then not a a U-turn in an instant, but definitely a big pivot in an instant. And about Osiris, you said, have I seen him since then? I'm going to pick up on that part of the question. I never saw Osiris after that. I met him that one night. I did later on when I started telling the Osiris story more and more, I kept getting that question. Did you ever talk to him again? And I started feeling very guilty because I hadn't. And so I reached out to a guy called, I I Googled Osiris, San Francisco poet, and some guy called, I think his name was Claude Steele. He he also met Osiris and he he had published a collection of Osiris's poems. So Osiris, I couldn't find an email address for him online, but I could find this one for this Claude Steele guy. I reached out, said, hey, I met Osiris. He had a big, enormous, disproportionate exponential impact on my life. Do you know how I can get in touch with him? I don't know. I haven't seen him in a while. I'm not sure. Last time I heard he was living at this place, some shelter. I said, okay, tell me something about him. He likes beef stew. So I got the address. I went on Amazon. I just bought the biggest case I could see of Diddy Moore beef stew, sent it to that shelter. And that was it. I, I don't know if Osiris was there. I don't know if he got it. I don't know if he ate any of it. Probably he doesn't even, if he's still around, he probably doesn't remember me. I was just a guy he met. He meets guys like me every day, I'm sure. So I I tried that for a while. I had this goofy idea that I was going to go to San Francisco. I have a friend who's a documentary filmmaker. I was going to go with him and do some film searching for Osiris, but that was just a pipe dream that never happened. But there, there probably hasn't been a week that's gone by in the past 10 years where I didn't either tell that story about him or talk about him. So he's very much still alive for me. Seems like a beautiful story of like building a friend and and learning from someone that you can consider a teacher. I consider like really everyone that I meet a teacher because there's always teachings that someone can provide. And I'm sure for you, now that you've pivoted from teaching and being in the academic field from statistics to storytelling, now to doing your own thing, you're probably leaving a great impact on others. Do you have any stories or experiences where you were like Osiris for someone else trying to find their voice and tell better stories? Mm, Maybe I do, but I'm going to dodge that question because that's the kind of story that someone needs to tell about me. (laughs) (laughs) Feels wrong telling that myself. I don't know. No, I don't have any. (laughs) I I want to be real. I, I get awkward saying that kind of stuff. That actually brings me to my next question about 
you feeling insecure about this journey into entrepreneurship? Was it feeling insecure and feeling like an imposter from a storytelling perspective? Do you feel like you just couldn't tell the stories that you wanted to tell in the way you wanted to tell them? Or do you feel like an imposter from being an entrepreneur, making money based on this thing that you found passion in? I feel like an imposter because honestly, this is truthful. I mean, everyone I'm working with, I hope they hear this. I can't believe people pay me to talk about storytelling. That we sit down, someone's working on a story, and I say, okay, in this part right here, you need to mention that you got a large taco and you picked up two hot sauces on the way out. And I help people do that, add spice to their stories. And I sit here every day, exactly where I'm sitting right now, every single day, helping people with their stories. And I feel like an imposter just because it doesn't seem right that I should be getting paid just to kind of have conversations like you and I are having right now, like the three of us are having right now. So that that's why I feel like an imposter just because it just doesn't make sense to me. Because look, I'm a dude who did a psychology PhD. Then I went to a business school. And now I, I'm teaching storytelling. Like I didn't work at Lucasfilm. I didn't work at Pixar. I haven't got an Academy Award for anything. So who am I? I just doesn't, I never wrote a novel. I haven't done any of that. And now I'm some storytelling dude. I'm waiting. Some, someone's going to find out that I'm a phony. It doesn't make sense. People are just going to realize that I don't really say anything. I just shout and wave my arms around a lot. And uh, I don't, I'm waiting on someone to find me out, man. Don't let anyone know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it's like that at all. And, you know, from just you telling the story about Osiris, I was like, oh, man, this guy is really, you know, I'm, I was really listening and captivated by the story. So I think that's pretty awesome that you can do that for companies and people. I would love to, I know this is almost like tooting your own horn again. I would love to kind of hear what do some of the people that you work with get the most value out of when it comes to enlisting in your services and making their stories better? Yeah, I think the main thing is to learn what a story is. And a story is best understood just being incredibly, incredibly simple, hand-waving a lot, is best understood by contrasting a story with what I call a crappy little speech. The acronym for that is SLS, right? You can use your imagination. What a crappy little speech is, is when someone just says, I'm a passionate thought leader, and they just say a bunch of stuff, but in the minds of the audience, the audience has a blank. That is no visual experience. Whereas in storytelling, what people need to realize is in storytelling, it's very different. In storytelling done properly, you're not trying to talk. You're trying to give your audience a mental movie. So what did I want to happen? When I tell you about Osiris, okay, why did I say, I turn around and there's an old black dude with a big gray beard and a coat four sizes too big and a scarf? Because that's what I saw when I turned around. And why am I saying that? Because that's what I want people to see, okay? And then, then I want them to see me at the dinner table with my colleague across from me, this guy I thought I wanted to become, and to see him ask that question, to imagine my disappointment, my frustration, my whatever, and to be there with us. So in stories, something happens to someone and it changes them. So the question was, what's the impact? It's really just an awareness of that. You called that a story? That wasn't a story, man. 
that was a crappy little speech. What we need to do is we need to get something to happen to someone and we need to give the audience a mental movie. And it doesn't need to be sophisticated. There doesn't need to be a car chase or a gunfight or sophisticated dialogue. There doesn't need to be anything. What gets the audience to lean in and to remember, and it's very, very simple, is just getting that inner experience, just a little glimpse of that mental movie. And when you start deliberately communicating that way, when you're trying to get your audience to see a mental movie when you communicate, and in a practical setting, it might be you go to an investor pitch and you want the investor to see what your user's life is like now in the normal world before your product and what that same user's day is going to be like after your product. And if you can get the VC to see a mental movie of that, then she's going to at least be more likely to appreciate the value that your product brings to that user. And she'll see value in your company. Whereas if you just go and you just talk a lot and throw numbers out and numbers are incredibly important, you should have a lot of numbers. But if it's all that, but the audience doesn't get a clear visual of what it all means, what it translates into in reality for actual people living their lives, if they don't see that, it's going to be much less effective than it would be otherwise. And that, that becomes a Jedi superpower once you recognize it. I'm not just talking. I'm not just speech giving. I am deliberately, willfully, with full focused intent, trying to give my audience a mental movie. So what does that mean? I need to be specific. I need to say that it was a medium taco and that he grabbed two hot sauces when he was leaving. And I need to say that he had on a coat that was four sizes too big and that he had a scarf on and that the notebooks that he carried his poems in was that black and white spackled kind that you used in the high school math class. And when I say all those little things, right? Nothing sophisticated, super elementary, but you can't control it, try to, you can't do it. You can't not get some visual image in your mind. And then when that happens, that makes it much more likely that you can retain it. And that should be a critical objective to anyone communicating anything is to get in the brain of your audience to perform an inception, to get them quite literally to see what you're saying. Why? Because then that's what best enables that mind to remember what was said. And you want people to remember what you say. You always want people to remember, well, not always, but most of the time when you're doing sensible things, you want people to remember what you say. And a good goal that you should give yourself is when you communicate, people should be able to repeat to others what you said. And the best way to do that is to perform that inception by trying to get in their mind and give them that little mental movie. So when I work with people, that's what it's about. I'm not a filmmaker. I don't pretend to be a filmmaker. I never worked at Pixar, but it's pretty easy, it's pretty simple to just see how to get in people's minds, to transplant those images from your mind into theirs and get them to see what you're saying and then to do what you would like them to do, to buy your product, to invest in you, whatever. It doesn't take sophistication, it doesn't take a novel, it just takes really just a little bit of psychology, it's all psychology. That's a powerful philosophy. And as you're talking, I was thinking about sifting for gold. There's gold there. There might be a small piece of gold. There might be a huge chunk of gold. I'd love to hear a story about when you're working with somebody and on the surface, it seemed like just nothing but dirt. There was no life. There was no soul. There was no nothing. But as you began to dig and work with this person, all of a sudden, a huge chunk of gold bubbles up to the top. I'd love to hear a story about when that happened with you. 
with most people, with a lot of people, the process goes like this. Okay, let's work on a story. I don't have a story. I don't know. Well, what's a point you would like to make? Well, I would like to make a point that I am a something about leadership or that my product is valuable. And the biggest challenge that most people face is actually just realizing how many incredibly good stories they have. That is, how many experiences they have that are story worthy. And then it becomes pretty algorithmic to translate those experiences into stories. It, honestly, it's, it's really quite formulaic. There's a setup, development, resolution, there's a turning point, it's overcoming some obstacle, you need to use detail and specificity to make it visual, and there's a formula. But, but the main challenge is just struggling with people and realize, you know, that story about what you just said about finding the strawberry at the beach, and then later on in your first job, you're working and, and just drawing those connections, usually that's the biggest aha moment for someone to realize that just the walk to Starbucks that morning itself is full of good material that not only is just story worthy, but could be a story worthy of a podcast or a TED stage someplace that just every single day we're swimming in it. Now, I'm giving what amounts to a crappy little speech right now. I answer your question. You have to forgive me for that. But, but that's, the, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the biggest change I see in people is when it clicks, wow, actually, I have lots and lots and lots of material. I never knew that I had so much material because I didn't know how to translate it into something that would actually become a story, would become a mental movie. And that's usually the aha is just, wow, I'm swimming in it. So that, that's a statistical answer to your question where you're actually asking for specificity. Pardon the dodge. I, I was just wondering right now if your stat background helps with your storytelling, because you're talking about building formulas and making things a repeatable pattern for people that you work with. Do you find that kind of leaning into your storytelling? Yes, in the following sense. One of the best ways to think about communication, and this is storytelling or anything, is to use a kind of backward induction reasoning. Some people listening, maybe even for your audience, quite a few people, maybe at some point took a machine learning class, they encountered reinforcement learning, and they got exposed to a Bellman equation. A Bellman equation is an instance of the application of backward induction. But the basic idea is if you're trying to solve a problem, look to the end state and then work back iteratively from the end state to the start to give yourself an optimal path to the end state. So using that, think about communication. Anytime you communicate something serious, you have some kind of strategic objective. I want this venture capitalist to write me a check. I want this customer to buy my product. That's the strategic objective. Now let's work back from that. If I want a VC to invest in my company, well, before the VC decides to invest in my company, what's going to happen? Well, an investment committee is going to meet and they're going to talk about me and maybe some other deals that they're looking at. Now, when they meet, what do I want to happen? Well, when they meet, I want them to say, and this is obvious, forgive me, I want them to say what I want them to say, right? That's a tautology, but still true. <laughs> so I want them to say what I want them to say. Okay, if that's just shy of my strategic goal, when they talk about me, which is going to be right before me, either achieving or not achieving that goal, I want them to say what I want them to say. Okay, let's move one step closer to now, one step 
back from that, but closer to now because we're working backwards from the end. For them to say what I want them to say, what needs to happen? Obvious, they need to remember what I said. They need to remember what I want them to say. To get the investment, they need to say what I want them to say, or at least if they do, I believe that increases my probability if I want to be very careful. For them to do that, then what happens one step shy of that? They need to remember it, okay? What do I want them to remember? I want them to correctly remember what I told them, what I pitched to them, because that's what I want them to repeat in the investment committee. Okay, so what's one step shy of them correctly remembering? Well, when I'm talking to them, I need them to actually understand what it is that I'm saying. So that's even one step closer to now. Now, for them to correctly understand what I'm telling them, there's even something prior to that. The first goal is that I need to get their attention because attention works like a gate. Okay, attention works like a gate. And what's the function of a gate? The main function of a gate is to stop stuff from going through. So if your counterparty, your audience, is not giving you their attention, their gate is closed. So whatever you're saying isn't going through. Okay, so the question was, does it influence my thinking, right? Remember, this is backward induction, Bellman-esque kind of thinking. Let's work it forward so you see. When I communicate, the first thing I need to do is get your attention. Because if I don't, that's a necessary condition, getting it. If I don't, the gate is going to close, the message is not going to go through, and nothing is going to happen. I've just significantly decreased my probability of getting the strategic objective if you're not even listening to me. Okay, now suppose I get your attention, your gate is up, you're listening to me. I don't want you just to be listening to me. I want to make sure that you understand me. Because if you're listening but you misunderstand me, then later on down the road when we get closer to the strategic objective, you're not going to remember the right thing. I need your attention. I need your, now I'm working forward. I need your attention. I need you to understand me. I want you to remember what I said so that you can talk about it. And what I'm trying to do when I'm pitching, for instance, just an easy example to use, is when I'm communicating, whether it's by storytelling or by some other means, salsa dancing, whatever I'm doing, I want to try to control that conversation that takes place in the investment committee. I'm trying to feed you your lines. Maybe that conversation will take place for another week, two weeks, maybe a month from now. But what I'm trying to do when I communicate is like a complete control freak, control what it is that you say. And I'm not going to be able to do that. And now I'm going to work backwards again. You're not going to be able to do it if you don't remember it, if you didn't understand it, if you weren't paying attention. So once you realize that communication is done properly, equivalent to solving an optimization problem with a very clear structure where you can apply this backward induction thinking, it changes everything. I'm not just talking because that's not the objective. The objective is not to talk. The objective is not even just for you to understand me because I can focus on you understanding me and get lost in the weeds on the 17th decimal place. But if in doing that, I cause you to start to get bored and your gate shuts down when I'm repeating myself so much trying to be clear, well, I just undermine it. Or I can try to be so technically clear that it doesn't give you much to remember later on. Okay, so I can go into the details, bullet points, lots and lots of numbers, numbers are good, but if I don't give you something to remember, something to hang it on, then you're not gonna be able to talk about it. So you have this whole system and you realize, okay, I can't approach this without clear intent, I have a problem, right? When you're solving a problem, when you're writing code, you must approach it with intent. You don't just start freestyling, just hitting keystrokes. You do it with intent. You know the end state that you're after. 
Storytelling works very well. Why? To, to wrap this up, because storytelling, it is very, very good. Just go just as a digression for a second, go to a movie. Okay. When the global virus pandemic, when all this is over and you can live a normal life again, go to a movie and sit in the front row of the movie theater. And it can even be some crappy movie. It doesn't matter. Just go sit in the front row and turn around and look at people. And just look at how they're just standing there like the world doesn't exist. Their eyes are just staring at the screen. It's as if the world doesn't exist. Why? Because people get engaged by stories. They're full attention. They're not thinking about their water bill. They're not thinking about anything like that. They're just watching the movie. If you give your audience that that mental movie, you get that gate up, you get their attention. If you structure it in the right way, hopefully they'll understand the value of your, your product, your service, whatever it is. They'll get that. And nothing is better remembered than a story, a a Mm -hmm. series of propositions on a PowerPoint slide. You're going to forget those. But a simple story, I can tell you, I met a guy named Osiris. He was a poet. We hung out for seven hours, told it to you once. You can remember it. And then if you can remember it, you can talk about it. So just you just you just need to realize that you have these very clear goals. And storytelling is not about telling some BS. That's a big problem people have is especially people who aren't good at it. It's a good defense mechanism to think that storytelling amounts to just BS fluff, especially for technical people. No, if you're technical and if you care about achieving your objectives and you're, you're actually trying to solve this optimization problem, which we just laid out the basic structure of, then you should be using the best tool available to you to optimize. Okay, you have your objective function, you see it. And I'm willing to bet that very often the tool that's going to help you best achieve that strategic objective at the end by achieving those tactical objectives is going to be storytelling. So it's not about BS. It's about communicating with intent, understanding the psychology of your audience, understanding just simply what is effective. And storytelling is very, very effective when you do it well. I just went off on like a 20 minute rant, man. Sorry about that. (laughs) It's perfect. You know, stories have a, a really, really secure place in my heart. My mom, she is an author. I remember that we would sit in the dark early in the morning and she would tell these stories. She would make up these stories about glowing purple coins and kids finding them and using them to do magical things. Ever since then, I've had this ability to just either see stories for what they were and be able to dissect them and understand the intent or even tell my own stories. Quite often, Ron and I will play around with the mics and we'll tell stories over music and and we just love the creative aspect of it. I'm wondering, did this really begin earlier? Like I know the Osiris story was a huge turning point in your life, but did this really manifest earlier in your life? Like when you were a kid? When I was a kid, I can't remember myself telling stories, but I spent a lot of time I I grew up, I I had a real redneck hillbilly upbringing. So I I spent a lot of time in the Atchafalaya Swamp hunting. And we would go to this place. You could only get there by boat. You go an hour in a boat deep into the swamp and spend most of my weekends in the winter at this camp with all these guys hunting. And this is late 70s, early 80s. There's no TV because there's no TV reception. I can't remember if... You could pick, probably could pick up AM radio out there, but probably not FM radio. And so dudes just talked. They just drank beer and they just talked. And quite often what that would go into is lots of storytelling. 
You're sitting there catfishing, tightlining late at night. What do you do? You tell stories. That was a very normal part of my upbringing. I was around it a lot. I don't think I did it myself a lot, but definitely I was exposed to it a lot. It was just normal, natural. Because those those dudes, they weren't talking about politics so much. They weren't complaining about their taxes. They, they would just hang out. And that, that was their means of entertaining themselves by sharing those stories. And I, I, I think that rubbed off on me. It was a very normal, natural part of the culture. That's great, Neil. One thing that I have to ask you, there's someone who is listening to this right now and they want to tell their story. They want to tell the story of something they've done, who they are. They want to tell the story of the company they built. What is that one piece of advice that you could give to that person to begin telling their story? You, you can check out, I have the domain startup the story and it's, it's just a, it's a philosophy. The basic idea is start up the story. The most important thing that person can do is just do it. In storytelling, if you go buy a book on storytelling, if you go buy a book, buy a book on writing, they're almost certainly they're going to talk about in writing, the most important, it depends on your philosophy, but a lot of people adhere to this philosophy, I do, is the most important thing is that you get words on the page and you'll hear about getting a shitty first draft. Almost 40% of the books will talk about that, the SFD. And why do you do that? Because if you just sit there thinking, okay, I'll do it someday when it's all perfect, when it's perfectly clear to me, when I have it all figured out, you'll never do it. And the reason why people don't do it is because of it, it's a word, resistance. People are afraid if they tell their story and it isn't good, they'll look like a fool. And they cook up these big stories in their head that prevent them from doing it. And the absolute most important thing that someone can do is just to start up the story, to do a first draft of the story. And storytelling is very much a social activity. So once you have a sense of what that draft is, the basic structure, what are you going to say? The most important thing to do then is to tell it to someone else. And you treat the story itself like a startup. That SFD is an MVP. And then you just lean startup it. Okay, build, measure, learn. You come up with it. You tell it to someone. If they smile at the right times, if they lean in, they're not blinking, it's good. If the dude's on his WhatsApp halfway through your story, it's not good. And you just keep revising. You keep iterating. What you absolutely do not do is let resistance sabotage you. What does that look like? Oh, I heard a podcast about storytelling. That's pretty interesting. Maybe I should do that. Let me go on Amazon and order some books on storytelling. Now, when those come, I will read them, and then maybe I'll try to tell someone my story. What that is, is that's procrastination. Then you find yourself getting the, the cheapest shipping option possible, right? Some dude's going to walk from Iowa to bring you your book because you just paid for the cheapest shipping possible. And why did you do that rather than getting it there overnight? Not, not because you don't have money, not because you're cheap, but because you don't want the book to come. Because when the book comes, you actually need to do it. You need to get in front of people. You need to practice. Well, you can just cut out all that. And the most important thing someone can do is just do it. And that's what a lot of people don't do. Why don't they do it? Because people have this foolish belief, if I do it, I can look like a fool. You know what, if you tell a story and it sucks, you know what happened? Well, it just sounded like most stories that people tell. People won't even notice the difference. But, mm -hmm. and it's possible, if you tell a story and it's good, there's huge upside potential in it. 
So there's no downside. People overestimate the downside. They think something bad's going to happen. They're going to look stupid. People won't notice that you look stupid because you just told a story the way they tell stories. They think that's what a story is. But if you get some of that upside, and how do you get the upside? Generally, just through iteration and practice. So that's my best advice. Just start up the story. Start doing it now. Get an MVP, an SFD, whatever you want to call it. Tell it to someone. Try to sense what worked. What was the conversation like after? Did they pick up on the right bits? Were they confused? Did you find out later that the guy told his buddy about it? And just keep iterating and practice, practice, practice. That's the main thing. In fact, most people, they don't need a story coach. They don't need someone like me. They don't need someone to help them. The most important thing they need to do is just overcome resistance and stop letting it sabotage them. That's a very, very common thing. And it's easy to overcome. You just do it. Over. (laughs) (laughs) Neil, on behalf of humanity, thank you so much for the service that you give everybody, because I do feel like there needs to be more stories in the world. And also, I wanted to thank you for hopping on the mics with us today. For those that want to stay up to date with you, all the things you're doing with Plotwolf and your other companies, what is the best way that people can stay up to date with what you got going on? Yeah, thank you very much. The, the best way is probably to go to LinkedIn. If they go to Plotwolf, Plotwolf is kind of cryptic, kind of a black tie affair, invitation only. It's not going to help people much. But if they go to LinkedIn, I post content there. I have a lot of stuff there. That's the easiest way to stay in touch. LinkedIn, Neil Bearden, pretty easy to find. Awesome. Perfect, Neil. We'll be sure to drop that in the show notes for everyone to stay up to date with what you got going on. And we'll see everyone next time. Over. (laughs) If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us. If you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.